0: This morning when you get home, perhaps look again at that third verse. That the sorrow and the grief and the pains of this world bring us to love Christ even more. They sing that song with us. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 35 and 36 this week. Hear now the word of the Lord. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church, what the Spirit says to our hearts. Let the message of Your Word penetrate us, dividing sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, break our hearts where they need to be broken so that You can remake them into hearts of flesh, so that You can transform us and continue Your work of sanctification in our lives to make us into the people of God that changes the world around us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This week we will again focus our attention on that surprising description of those people who had returned with Ezra to Jerusalem, where they're described as those who have come from captivity. Two weeks ago, we began by seeing how this is a surprising description of a group who had been free to return to Jerusalem for more than 80 years. And from that, we began to look at what things in our lives would try to recapture us or to hold us back from the freedom given by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would try to bring us back under its dominion, re-enslaving us, if possible, to its control. The first thing we looked at was the deceitfulness of sin, which promises freedom, but delivers a slavery that leads to death. And we saw how it pulls you in with false promises, enticing your flesh to leave behind your love for God as you seek to satisfy yourself. Last week then, we looked at the law itself, which is good if used lawfully, but is a merciless and cruel master otherwise. We looked at how the law was given to show us how incapable we are of pleasing God, of being the kind of people that are incapable of sin. And when the law had taught that to us, its purpose was to drive us to the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law precisely because He was incapable of sin, though tempted in every way, both brutal and subtle. And thus we dare not return to the judgment and the condemnation of the law, but rely entirely on the gift of God through Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf and took upon Himself the guilt of our sin. And so we're no longer striving to be acceptable to God, but we instead live in a new life where we are free to please God. And that brings us to today, where we will look at this last slaver we'll consider in this short series. And I've reserved this one for last because I felt like we needed to understand the dangers of sin and the improper application of the law before we examined this sinister and subtle threat. Because today we will look at this thing that would lure us back into captivity, and that is the world. You may ask, what do you mean by the world? It seems a bit anticlimactic. After all, we know sin is deadly and we know the law would bring us back under its dominion of judgment. But what danger is the world, really? And what alternative to the world do we have? After all, we're not about to set out like the pilgrims did and establish a new society in an untamed land these days. We're just simply running out of untamed land. So if the world is... Truly seeking to enslave us, how can we possibly avoid being captivated? And we'll take those very questions as we look today at what the Scripture says. First, I want to make sure we all understand what we're talking about when we talk about the world. What does the Scripture mean by the term the world? And I would give you this definition for you to keep in mind throughout today's message. The world is the sum total of the actions that are done by fallen men, which the Bible calls the flesh. Those actions are what the Bible calls the flesh. And we see that relationship of these two evil forces in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 where Paul says, "...you once walked in these, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." And so we must keep in mind that the world is not only in close communion with the flesh, it acts through the flesh to attempt to capture us, to attempt to hold on to us, to attempt to bring us back into its domain. A moment ago in that passage in Ephesians, we saw that Paul explains what it means to live in the passions of the flesh. If you look there, It means that we are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. When it talks about the flesh, it's not just talking about the body, but the body and the mind also, the will and the heart. And likewise, when we speak of the world, we're not simply talking about this spinning ball of dirt and water that we live upon. We are talking about the systems. We're talking about the people. We're talking about the fallen nature that, is, that makes up the world around us. And that is the very thing we have been called out from. The world is not solely about material things, but is a spiritual state. In the Ephesians passage, we see the world ruled by Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air and working through His evil spirit through the sons of disobedience, that is, everyone who is not in Jesus Christ. The enemy is powerful and his attacks are subtle to draw us back into the world under His control. And so this morning I would like to take a look at some of the temptations, the baits, that the world would use to lure us back. The first is the promise of comfort. That promise we know from the Scriptures is hollow and false because it is only comfort in this life. You can be comfortable every single day of your life and still end up in a burning hell You will stand before the judgment of God. And so all the comfort you had in this life means nothing. Among those people who returned with Ezra, this may very well have been what held them in captivity the longest. They were comfortable. They had a life in Babylonia. Returning to Jerusalem, a wasteland, would be hard and uncertain and would require tremendous upheaval in their lives. What would become of their comforts, their ease, their entertainments? What would they do in Jerusalem? There was no theater. There were no movies. What would they do with themselves in the middle of a wasteland? Perhaps if they were making this journey today, they might worry whether they would still be able to access their social media accounts or their games or any of the other hobbies or entertainments that we enjoy today. Babylonia was gilded. It was lavish. There was plenty there to do. And the enemy will offer you the same peace and ease and comfort In this world, if you will only stop following God so closely. The devil made that offer to Jesus Christ Himself when he took Him up to a very high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and said to Him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and bow to Me and worship Me. He, is, he makes the same offer to us time and time again. And to our shame, we have chosen the world far too often. Often this offer comes with a threat also. If you don't compromise your faith, the enemy will make your life as difficult as he can. Persecution Hardship, betrayal, these are all weapons in the enemy's arsenal and he stands ready to use them. Christian, do you cherish your comfort more than God's call? Given the choice between your entertainments and service to God, which do you choose? Not which should you choose, Which have you chosen? Which do you consistently choose? Do you choose the comforts of this world? Or do you choose the mockery of the world and standing with Jesus Christ? If your ministry to God required you to forego a single day's worth of meals, would you do it? And furthermore, would you do it gladly? Alas, the state of our American church is so often that we have sought the things of this world with greater urgency than the things of God. The indictment of James in the fourth chapter of his epistle to the saints of his day, brothers in the Lord, should chill our soul to its very core. In James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Enmity with God. God is your enemy if you are friends with the world. That's what enmity means. Hatred. Hostility. And when James tells us that he yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us, he is telling us that God has no intention of sharing His people with anybody else. They are His and His alone. You are not called to put one foot in the world and one foot with God. You are all in or all in. We are His. We have been bought with an unfathomable price. We who are in Christ have been bought by the blood of the only begotten Son of God. If you have loved your worldly comforts, even if you told yourself they're not really that nice, It doesn't matter if anyone else would treasure them, if you love them beyond their eternal worth. Not their worth to any other person, but their worth in the light of eternity. Jesus warned the church in Sardis when He told them through John in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. That is to his church, people. He's not talking to pagans who stay away from church. He's not talking to those who would philosophize against the church. He is talking to people who are sitting in the church. And he says, You think you're alive and you're dead because you have loved this world more than you've loved me. Repent. Turn to God and away from the idolatry and the greed of this world. The second way the world lures us in addition to using our comfort is through its philosophies. It would be fair to say that since the world is made up of fallen, unconverted human beings, every one of the world's philosophies add up to fallen men and women trying to live by their own wits. But the wisdom of this world is as fallen and as perverted and as evil as those who conceive it in their hearts. It is where the Word of God, the Creator of all things, is unsought and unwelcome. It is where the blind lead the blind. It is where philosophy masquerades as morality, and each man does what is right in his own eyes. In the wisdom of the world, there is hopelessness. In the wisdom of the world, there is tumult. There is, I find no better word to say it, vanity, futility in the wisdom of this world. The best wisdom of this world can be described, as my great-grandmother might have said, always churning, but never making any butter. Always moving, always wasting energy, and never accomplishing anything. They cast about because they don't want to believe in God. They refuse to look at the creation and acknowledge a creator. They would rather give you a big bang that can explain a universe without God, not because they have any evidence. My friend, I can give you more evidence for our living God and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead than all the scientists in all the world can provide for any of their alternative views. They put forward speculation and conjecture. that build a house of cards on theory after theory that are unprovable. I offer changed lives, miracles, and the inerrant and infallible Word of God He has given us to know how to come to Him. You want to talk about evidence? We have it. They don't reject the idea of a Creator because it is false. They reject Him because they refuse to bow down to Him. They love the darkness rather than the light. They shake their fist in His face because they have blinded themselves to the truth that one day we will all stand before the Almighty God in judgment. They would cower in front of a bully And they think they're brave in front of the Almighty God. No worldly philosophy will lead anyone back to God through Jesus Christ. Not a single one. And I stand by that statement even when people stand up and talk about a Christian worldview. Maybe you've heard that term before. The argument goes like this. We must defend the gospel of Christ in the marketplace so that we try to convince people of the truth of the gospel. That all sounds very good to our fleshy ears, except while the church expends time and effort and resources debating the merits of our worldview, the work of the gospel lies dormant. We are not called to convince someone to come to Christ. We are, ca- we are called to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. To tell them the truth of the gospel. It is not an opinion. It is not a philosophy. It is the truth that God has given us, the only truth that will save people from this world. And it pains and convicts me to say this, but arguing with a pagan on Facebook is not witnessing. I've done it, that's why it hurts. Trying to convert someone to your way of thinking is not the same as bringing them to Jesus for Him to convert their heart. Arguing politics is not witnessing. You will never convince someone of the gospel who has not been regenerated by Jesus Christ already. The church does not exist to preach Americanism, Capitalism, consumerism, or anything else. The church and each individual follower in her exists solely to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are hopeless in your sin. Jesus is the only way to stand before a holy God. That's the gospel. That's your elevator pitch. Listen to Paul's description of his message to the seemingly quite modern Corinthian church. Whenever I start worrying about the church in our day, I always have the Corinthian letters to go to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Church, we have to stop trying to convert people to our way of thinking. We need people converted to the power of Jesus Christ. In his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, that 20th century martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, makes this statement. It's the central statement of the book. He says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to the world, live to God. How many would choose to follow Christ if they were told that the moment you follow Him will be the end of life as you have known it? But for the church of God, that is exactly what Jesus told us when He said in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. The truth of the Gospel is that the moment you follow Christ will be the end of life as you have known it. Your life is no longer your own. Your path is no longer your own. You have been bought. And you are now the servant of God. And you will go where He calls you to go. You will go where He takes you. In that transaction, you are redeemed from that futility, from that churning of the world, the vanity, the futility, and given hope in Jesus Christ. In that transaction, you were saved from the wrath of God and brought brought instead, adopted into His family. In that transaction, you were brought from hopelessness and despair into the service of the God of the universe. How can your life possibly be the same? You were dead and now you're alive. How can we continue to lie there. The help you have in Christ to offer others is no longer temporary or or incomplete. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest power on earth, the great news of God's redemption to offer to anyone who will hear. But the world continues to whisper the world continues to scream at you to compromise. Just give in a little bit. Just allow a little of the world to mix with your faith. Why are you being so close-minded? Why are you being so single-minded? And that was the error of those who waited so long to return with Ezra. And we'll see in the coming weeks, it was the very error that Ezra found when he arrived at Jerusalem. Don't buy into the lie that it is normal for you to have a foot both in the world and in heaven. In Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, Paul tells us, By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Don't buy into the lie that you can have salvation after you die, but live for yourself for your pleasures, for your desires, for your sins until then. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. We read earlier in our Scripture reading, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul puts it the same message a different way. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not simply having your mind changed or becoming convinced, but being transformed, being miraculously changed, being raised from death into life. I don't care if everyone you know is living like the world The holy holy call of God does not depend on the obedience of others. I love that old hymn that says, Though none go with me, I still will follow. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your citizenship, if you are in Christ, is not here. It is in heaven. Your first allegiance is not here. It is in heaven. So how do we avoid being captured by the world? Or put positively, how do we overcome the world? First, Galatians 5.16 tells us, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. As a follower of Christ, you cannot simply buy into the stuff the world is telling you. Be wise through the Spirit and see what you're being enticed to do or enticed to believe or enticed to say. What I would tell you is what the fisherman would never tell the fish. Look for the hook inside the bait. The second way that we can overcome the world is found in Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God seek the things that are above set your minds on the things that are above not on the things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God you have died to this world when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also will appear with him in glory. Don't allow yourself to be enticed by the seemingly free sins that the world has to offer. Don't be lured by their sales pitches. Everybody's doing it. It won't hurt just this once. It's not that bad. You hear the echo of the serpent. You'll not surely die. Keep seeking the things of God in Christ Jesus. Loving Him more and more every single day. And as your affection for Him grows, your affection for the world will diminish. And then third, trust God to complete His work in you, bringing you to your true and eternal home. I love the summary that the writer of Hebrews makes about the faithful through the ages. You remember that great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. And he tells us, summarizes the story of all those who have been faithful to God in verses 13-16. through 16, Where he says, all, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Are you a stranger and an exile on the earth? Or have you settled in like Lot into Sodom? For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. We're looking for a home. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. That wasn't the homeland they were looking for. They knew that the destination they were seeking is not on this earth. The destination that God has for you in Christ is not here. Your homeland is not here where there's grief and there's pain and there's difficulty and there are tornadoes and there's COVID and all these other things. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And then listen to the testimony. Therefore God is not Ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. Their hope is set on God. Is your hope set on Jesus Christ? Or do you trust your bank accounts? Do you trust your entertainments? Do you trust your hobbies? Do you trust the things that this world has to offer? if your trust is anywhere but God, it is in the wrong place because nothing else is preparing for you a city. Let's pray. Our Father, You have gone to prepare a place for us. A place that Your Son will bring His bride And will dwell with all of us who are in Christ forever. We await that day. We long for the day that we will be united. That we will stand before you. That we will see you face to face. The judgment holds no terror for those who are in Christ. Because there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. And so God let us see this world for what it is. A foreign land. Where we are strangers and exiles. Even though we were born into this world. We have been born again to your kingdom. This world is no longer our home. Draw us to You even more closely. Let us love You more each and every day. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, through whose blood we have been saved. Amen.